I'd invite you to turn, if you will, at this time to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 27 through 33 this morning. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Father, enable us this morning to uh, gather much out of this passage to understand how this speaks to our faith and how this speaks to our life before you, what we should esteem most highly, what we should value most deeply, how we need to understand that our salvation lies in the person and work of the Lord Jesus and how we should live trusting in him each day. We would ask that your grace and your gospel would feed us today and strengthen us, that we might be as Jesus wants us to be, salt and light in this world, even to this generation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin this morning with the very unpleasant voice of Richard Dawkins. Now, um, some of you recognize the name. Richard Dawkins is a celebrated author, an ardent atheist, and evolutionist who uh, wrote the book The God Delusion. And uh, what he has to say in one particular section of his book uh, illustrates the deep, deep hatred that the world has with respect to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why I want you to read this, so you can understand that that what has happened in the world, what has happened in Western civilization, what has happened in Europe, what has happened in America, where the gospel has done the most good for so many people for so long, yet there is this deepest kind of reaction to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is the way that Dawkins describes the God of John 3.16, the God who would send his only begotten Son into the world that we might have have everlasting life. He says, God incarnated himself as a man. Now he's speaking of this in terms of charging God with being a sadomasochist. (laughs) God incarnated himself as a man, Jesus, in order that he should be tortured and executed in atonement for the hereditary sin of Adam 
Ever since Paul expounded this repellent doctrine, Jesus has been worshipped as the Redeemer of our sins, not just the past sins of Adam, future sins as well, whether future people decided to commit them or not. And he says a whole lot more. But he goes on then to say, I have described atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. We should also dismiss it as a barking mad, for, but for its ubiquitous familiarity with which has dulled our objectivity. Basically, he's saying, we would all recognize how very much this doctrine is madness, craziness, mental illness, if it weren't for the fact that it so permeated our culture. Uh, nothing he says further gets any better than that or any worse than that. Uh, but it does point out, and that's where I want to begin this morning, with our understanding, the understanding even of Scripture, that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most repellent doctrine in the Bible according to the way the world sees God and man and religion. According to a worldly understanding, there is nothing worse than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, out of this passage, what I want us to understand this. Christ, without the cross, is Christ without salvation. To reject the cross is to believe that Satan loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Let me say that again. Christ, without the cross, is Christ without salvation. To reject the cross, I'm speaking not just to non-Christians here, I'm speaking to what is happening within the so-called evangelical world of Christians. To reject the cross is to believe that Satan loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, we have the story here of the Lord Jesus. We have what's happening here on the road to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, if you looked at a map, you would see that if the, if the Sea of Galilee was like a clock, um, the uh, Caesarea Philippi villages and road would be up toward about 1 o'clock on the clock dial, outside the clock and up. So they've moved away from the greatest areas of controversy because Jesus is taking his disciples away for a period of time because now the greatest of all transitions happens within the earthly ministry of Christ. Something significant is going to happen on this trip in a couple of different ways. And then the Lord Jesus is going to return back to the orbit of where there's far more controversy, far more of the presence of his enemies as he begins his last trek toward Jerusalem. So this is a period of time in which, which Jesus has his disciples alone. And what happens in the story are, are three rather remarkable kinds of things that sort of outline what the text is saying. There is the identification of Christ by Peter, and it's a rather remarkable identification for several reasons. Then Jesus is going to speak about the necessities with respect to the rest of his ministry involving suffering. And that's going to be a remarkably difficult thing for his disciples to handle, especially Peter. But then finally, in terms of what Jesus does with Peter, we're going to see a remarkable emphasis upon the necessity of the cross with respect to salvation. 
So let's begin with the first part, verses 27 to 30, where there's this remarkable identification of Jesus as the Christ by Peter. Now the context here is like a, a Q&A. Uh, Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and in Luke's gospel it actually says that this, this particular time comes out, out of a period of prayer. So Christ had actually been moving along the road to Caesarea Philippi, stopped to have a time of prayer, and he's now asking his disciples, who do the multitudes, who do the people say that I am? And so they give the various common responses of the day. You know, some say that you are uh, one of the prophets. Some say that you are Elijah. Some say that you are Jeremiah. It's, it's like the people were, were thinking, yeah, Jesus is somebody special, and, and maybe one of the prophets of old has now come back to life and is incarnate in the person of Jesus. But that's what they're basically thinking. And Jesus then directly asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's response is, you are the Christ. Now, let's reflect upon what Peter says there and why what Peter says is, in fact, remarkable. First, there's a certain degree of boldness in what Peter is saying here. Um, what he's saying is different than what the multitudes are saying. Uh, so it's, it's, it's boldly different in that sense. They're looking at Jesus as uh, uh, something less than who Jesus really is. And, and so Peter boldly nails the fact that Jesus is the Christ. But we might also understand there's a bit of boldness in the fact that, that the religious leadership have not only rejected the idea that Jesus is uh, one of the prophets arisen from of old, uh, they've rejected him as the Messiah. They have assigned him as one of the agents of Beelzebub himself. Uh, what you do, you do through the power of the devil, is the assessment of the scribes and the Pharisees, the Rhodians and the others who have aligned themselves against Christ. So Jesus here is, is asking Peter this. He gets a remarkable response from Peter. He gets a very significant response from Peter. Peter is stating this with a degree of boldness. But I want us to understand that what we find Mark recording here is not the whole story of what happened there. That is, there is a significant difference between Mark's account and Matthew's account in terms of Mark leaving out something incredibly significant. So let me tell you what, what Matthew says, and then let's reflect upon this and how this reflects upon Peter. In Matthew's account, when, when Peter says, you are the Christ, Matthew records that it goes on to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew further records that Jesus says, uh, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means Simon, son of Jonas, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, a Greek word for rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, let's note, 
all the different things that Matthew records happened and spoken that day from Jesus that Mark doesn't record. Mark doesn't include the fact that God has revealed this to Peter, that Peter has been the vehicle of direct divine revelation. Mark doesn't record that. Further, Mark doesn't record how Jesus here renames Peter, renames Simon Barjonas as Peter, a symbolic name. It means rock. Nor does Mark include the fact that this divinely given revelation and confession on the part of Peter is now the very rock foundation upon which the church is going to be rebuilt so that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Mark doesn't record this. That was in the mouth of Peter that Jesus says is so incredibly significant. And and then finally, Mark doesn't include how Peter is given the keys of the kingdom, which indicates that Peter, at this particular point, is being told that he's being elevated to the primary leadership among the apostles. And if you read the book of Acts, you realize that in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, that is precisely so. Peter is the leading apostle. Now, so none of what happened to to Peter that day that singled out Peter, that set Peter apart from the other apostles, is mentioned by Mark. Now, why is that the case? Now, Now, listen very carefully. We have pointed out from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark that it is the Apostle Peter who stands behind this Gospel account. Peter, uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is, is coaching and directing and superintending whatever Mark writes. And, and it's clear that what happened that day there's a great deal that Peter says, no, don't put that in there. Which is to say, Peter, Peter's saying to Mark, don't put in there those things that elevated me with honor and set me apart and in a certain sense above my fellow apostles. Don't. Don't put those things that single me out as the recipient of special blessing and honors on that day. And we can only think that as we think through the story, the reason Peter did that, the reason Peter did not allow those things to be said, not allow Mark to write about those things, because Peter wanted this story to indict him and his opposition to the cross without any mitigating thing of, well, Peter's also the celebrated apostle. Do you understand what I'm saying? Peter did not want the honor that happened to him that day in any sense to overshadow or compete with the dishonor that he brought to Christ that same day. And we have to say what an incredible element of humility in the life of Peter. Or another way of putting it, Peter wanted Mark's story here to emphasize how incredibly significant it is to reject the cross of Christ. And he didn't want anything else said about him to take away from the significance of that message.
you have to understand that in Peter's mind, it doesn't matter how highly honored he was that day, within a few moments he had deeply, deeply dishonored Christ. Peter wants his whole episode to reflect upon the fact that his fleshly assumptions, his worldly desires, and his spiritual failure is the point of recognition, not any honor that Christ had given to him with respect to the rest of the apostles. But before we get there in the story, note what is said in verse 30. Jesus charges them after after Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus charges them very, very strongly Don't tell this to anyone. And and the reasons may not be too obvious, but essentially the multitudes will jump on this for the wrong reasons. It will aggravate the opposition against Jesus even further with respect to his enemies. And in the planning of God, it's not yet the time for the Messiahship of Jesus to be revealed to the world. That must take place after the resurrection of Christ. Now, at verse 31, we we begin to look at the remarkable necessities that remain with respect to Christ's ministry. So once Jesus has specifically told the disciples, uh, don't say anything about what Peter has said, this remarkable identification that Peter has made, don't say anything about this. Then Then Jesus goes on, to describe what remains with respect to his ministry. The the remarkable necessities that now must accompany his ministry until it comes to its completion. And he mentions four things. He says, first, that he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things. Uh, Secondly, that he's going to be rejected by all of the religious leadership. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're all going to reject him. The elders. Thirdly, he's going to be put to death that that's going to be the outcome of of the opposition that he's going to face. But the last thing he says is, but he's going to rise from the dead after three days. Now, the important issue here is the necessity of it being this way. Now, what Christ is referring to, uh, although the crucifixion is not specifically mentioned, is in fact the crucifixion. And we we understand that because just a few... um, in terms of time and in terms of verses, just a short distance later and a short distance in time later, Jesus is going to put out the demands of discipleship. And he's going to use the analogy of the cross, the symbol of the cross, to describe what discipleship is. Well, that wouldn't make any sense if if when he spoke about his death, crucifixion was not in mind. So when Jesus speaks about his death, the primary way in which people were put to death in Israel, in this period of time, even though stoning was an option, was crucifixion. So Jesus is speaking about the cross. He's speaking about his sufferings leading to the cross. He's speaking of this as a necessity with respect to what remains in terms of his ministry. And really for two reasons. There's a historical necessity. The Old Testament had predicted scripturally that the Messiah was going to be the suffering servant. Now, even though most did not understand this, uh, Isaiah chapter 53 tells us very clearly that all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way, 
but the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. We also have Psalm 22, which is clearly the crucifixion psalm. Uh, a thousand years before uh, Jesus' day, some 700 years before crucifixion came into the world, David is prophesying that the Messiah is going to be nailed to a cross, crucified. That's how he's going to die. And so there's the necessity that Jesus suffer this way because scripturally, historically, this is God's plan. And all things written about the Son of Man must take place. But in addition, there's the spiritual significance underlying the necessity of Jesus dying this way. A number of times I have quoted the godly theologian and, and bishop of the Anglican Church, Bishop J.C. Ryle. He wrote toward the end of the 1800s. A very godly man, friend of all those who loved the Reformed faith, loved the scriptures, loved the gospel. And this is what he has to say about this passage. He says, Jesus meant that his death and passion were necessary in order to make atonement for man's sin. Without shedding his blood, there could be no remission. Without the sacrifice of his body on the cross, there could be no satisfaction of God's holy law. He must suffer as reconciliation for iniquity. He must die because without his death as a propitiatory offering, sinners could never have life. He must suffer because without his vicarious suffering, our sins could never be taken away. In a word, he must be delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. In other words, Jesus was teaching his disciples that what he, the Christ, must endure is the way of the cross, the way of suffering, that there's no other way by which salvation could come into this world. The cross of Christ, absolutely necessary. But then look at the second part of verse 32. When Peter hears this, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. You just have to pause. You just have to picture what is going on. Peter has moved from the glow of being so highly praised by Jesus. As it were, being in the center of the spiritual spotlight because he's the one who remarkably identified Jesus as the Christ. To a few moments later, taking Jesus aside and rebuking him. Now, let's think about this for a moment. You know for sure that in, that in Peter's mind, he's not recognizing that his, that his actions are dishonoring Christ. He's not seeing this. He would never have done this if he thought that his actions was a dishonor to Christ, which tells us that we can be wrong deeply wrong, eternally deeply wrong, 
in all sincerity, even when we think we're right. Now, in the first place, it, it, is, it, is, it is proper to, to credit the response of Peter out to his great love for Jesus. I mean, he's just heard something that had had to be personally and emotionally very disturbing. What would you do if someone you love so dearly started saying to you, and now here's, the, here's, the next, here's what's going to happen next, and it's going to lead to my death? Especially, the second thing about Peter is that he has this other conception of what the Christ is supposed to be. The thinking of Israel at this time under the oppression of Rome was that when, Jesus, when God sends his Messiah into the world, he's going to be the one who's going to bring the great deliverance for the nation Israel. It's going to be the overthrow of the evil empire of Rome. It's going to be the restoration of the kingship and the nation and everything to Israel. And, and also it's going to be the entrance of Israel's great glory because Israel is going to be the chief of all nations in all of the world. That was the typical understanding of the Messiah and the coming of the Messianic age. That when, when the Messiah comes, he is going to restore to Israel everything that Israel has lost, everything that Israel has, has suffered, that everything is going to be preeminently great for the nation of Israel. And so when Jesus says these things, it, it sounds almost spiritually wrong. How can the death of the Messiah fit into all of that? But think a little bit further. In a larger sense, Peter's reaction mirrors what we often think or feel as people who are blinded by our fallen natures. We have difficulty with the plans and ways of God when those plans and ways don't conform to our ideas. Uh, we've all heard something like this. We've all heard somebody say something like this. Well, I could never believe in a God like that. Likewise, we have people today who call themselves Christians who say things like this. Well, I could never believe in a Jesus who would be like that or teach things like that. Whenever the actual teachings of Jesus go counter to their own ideas, their own plans for how they want to live their lives. Now, let's think about this in terms of our response. We will often react to such people at least with an inward kind of judgment. I know because I'm reflecting what goes on inside of me. Well... You expect God to conform to your little mind and your little ideas. You are such an idolater. You're remaking God after your own image. I think you need to reread the second commandment. But I'm thinking that we need to add a second perspective. That Peter, who had just confessed by the revelation of God the true identity of Jesus was yet unable to grasp the way of suffering, the way of the cross, unable to grasp a Jesus like that. 
And so perhaps we might say to people who say things like, well, I could never believe in a Jesus like that. I could never believe in a God like that. Perhaps we might say to people who, who, who have difficulty believing in the biblical Jesus, well, the apostle Peter was once in that same position. He didn't think Jesus should do things the way that Jesus was going to do things. But in the final analysis, it was Peter who had to change his viewpoint and his perspective, and they were greatly changed. And really the point is this, all of those who really love Jesus will be corrected by Jesus. It's not possible to follow Jesus if we do not follow his teachings. Now lastly, the, the remarkable importance and significance of the cross. Now, I want us to look at this coming out of the text in terms of, or to put it this way, what is it to have Christ without the cross? Jesus is going to rebuke Peter for rebuking him. And notice how Mark records this. Jesus, in rebuking Peter, turns back to his disciples. So he's facing his disciples. Peter has taken him away. Jesus is with him there. He turns back to his disciples. So he's facing his disciples when he rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. So that the audience includes all of his disciples. All of them. So that he's saying the manner of his dealing with Peter is not a private and personal thing. This is so big. This is of such great importance. All the disciples need to get this and to get it straight. The whole leadership of the church is the audience of Christ at this point when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're wrong. Even more to the point, Peter, you are satanically wrong. Your way of seeing this, Peter, continues the same deception by which Satan deceived Adam and Eve. Satan had said to Eve, you shall surely not die. And now, Peter, you are saying to me, you shall surely not die. But your words, your perspective, your thinking are tools of satanic deception designed to destroy the human race and the true work of God. That's what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus describes what is really going on here in a twofold manner. He says with respect to Peter's mindset, first, it's not on the things of God. Secondly, it's on the things of man. So, there's a worldly perspective. There's the godly perspective. But let's put it in this way. What do you get when you have Christ without the cross? What do you get? And then secondly, what do you lose when you have Christ without the cross? If we answer those two questions, we get at the worldly perspective and the perspective from God. When you have Christ 
without the cross. Uh, you get all sorts of Jesuses. That's plural of Jesus. You get all sorts of Christ. Every religion wants to stake its claim in Jesus. But the Buddhist Jesus and the Islamic Jesus and the Hindu Jesus and the New Age Jesus and the Mormon Jesus and the Jehovah's Witness Jesus and the Christian Science Jesus, they're not the same. But all of them want a stake in Jesus. But none of them want the cross. So you get a variety of different views of Christ when you subtract out the cross. For the most part, the Jesus that you're going to wind up getting is just a great moral example, a great example on how to live. We should all be like Jesus. We should imitate Christ. We should follow Jesus in his steps. We can all wear bracelets with the initials WWJD. What would Jesus do? What would, <laughs> and then do what Jesus did. But what does that look like? Well, I've heard it expressed this way. If you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to be tolerant like Jesus is because he said, judge not lest you likewise be judged. Quit being judgy. That isn't like Jesus. Jesus is tolerant. And not only that, but Jesus is all about love. It's Jesus who taught us to love our neighbor as we would love ourselves. Love everyone. And love them just like they are. Again, don't be judgy. If you really love people, you're going to have total acceptance. And then total nonviolence. Gosh, God, Jesus wants you to be a peacemaker. He wants you to turn the other cheek. He wants you to repudiate all violence. He wants you to give up playing this eye-for-an-eye game. Ever getting even. And then Jesus wants you to understand that he identified with victims. You know, all those people who've been marginalized by society because Jesus was a victim. He was marginalized. You know, he was part of that working class poor. And he was a victim of the political powers that wanted to preserve the status quo. And he was a victim of organized religion because he spoke out against the intolerances of the organized religion of his day. The point is this. Without the cross, you get a today's Jesus. You get a spirituality that totally accepts anyone and everyone where you would never embarrass a person by talking about sin. Because this Jesus of today doesn't really believe that sin is the issue between you and God. It doesn't separate you. The Jesus of today believes that if you're feeling guilty about sin, it's a neurosis that attacks your self-esteem. And Jesus wants you to believe in yourself as someone who's incredibly special in the eyes of God. Because you've all heard it said, God don't make no garbage. Now, this is what you get when you have the Jesus without the cross. And Jesus is rebuking this view. So we need to look carefully at what you lose without the cross. What you get without the cross is this wax-nosed Jesus who can be shaped into any different philosophy you want. What you lose without the cross 
are these things. Without the cross, you lose God's demonstration that He truly loves sinful human beings. The Apostle Paul said, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You take away the cross. There is no evidence at all in this world that God loves anyone. Secondly, without the cross, you lose God taking care of our sin by the great sacrifice of His Son. 1 John 4.10 And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. When you get rid of the cross, you get rid not only of the proof that God loves us, you get rid of the very thing that is destroying your life. Without the cross, you lose the highest motivation to ever be ethically, morally right and good toward others because the greatest kind of ethical rightness and goodness toward others is to love them in the way the Bible says to love them. 1 John 4.11 Beloved, if God so loved us, if God so loved us that a son died for our sins as a propitiation, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. So what do you get without the cross? A Jesus that is unnecessary to this world because we already have a dozen philosophies that can tell you how to live as well as Jesus would ever tell you how to live without the cross. What do you lose if you have Jesus without the cross? You lose the proof of God's love. You lose the covering for your sin. And you lose any real reason to love other human beings. Christ, without the cross, gives you Satan, not God. Christ, without the cross, gives you hell, not heaven. Christ, without the cross, gives you a guilty and failed life rather than forgiveness and redemption and life eternal. When Jesus rebukes Peter, we see Jesus pressing upon his disciples the total, complete, irrevocable necessity of the cross. It is the cross where God made him, his son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. True Christians... We'll never stop singing of the power of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we pray that with the Apostle Paul, we would not glory except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ.
by which we were crucified to the world and the world was crucified to us through the crucifixion of your Son, the Lord Jesus. May it ever be that we proclaim and preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified to your glory forever. Amen.